Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Welcome to Season 4 of Talking Sleep. It's my honor to kick off the new year with a very special guest, Dr. Susan Redline. Dr. Redline is a professor of sleep medicine and professor of epidemiology at Harvard. She directs programs in sleep and cardiovascular medicine and sleep medicine epidemiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Redline is a legend in our field and has managed not only to further sleep research, but has extensively evaluated how sleep intersects with other disorders. She has harnessed big data and looks at environmental and socioeconomic issues related to sleep apnea and works to address sleep health disparities. She'll be the keynote speaker at Sleep 2022 and recently was part of a paper from the American Heart Association on screening for obstructive sleep apnea in cardiovascular patients. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Redline. Well, thank you for the invitation and thank you for that awfully generous and kind uh, comments. I really appreciate it. Um, Hope I could live up to um, some of those comments during the next few minutes. <laughs> they're, they're actually really toned down um, from my first draft. <laughs> so you were part of a paper published by the AHA that talked about the importance of screening for OSA in cardiology patients. Tell me about this. The American Heart Association has shown a specific level of interest and commitment to educate their members, that is, our colleagues in cardiology, mm. on the links between sleep apnea and heart disease. And in that way, they have interest, they're very committed to publishing uh, state-of-the-art reviews, reviewing the biologic, physiologic links between sleep apnea and a variety of heart disease, as well as providing overviews of what the spectrum of diagnostic and screening modalities are, and um, and also overviews and statements regarding uh, the role of screening and treatment. And it was all those um, areas that were addressed in that recent American Heart Association statement. So the message to me seems to be that cardiology should be more intentional about screening for OSA in their, in their patients. So is your impression that this would be sort of under the umbrella of the cardiology program, or is this in collaboration with sleep medicine? That is a fantastic question. The impression, and of course, I think it's an evolving um, landscape. My understanding is that the cardiologists understand that they it is their role to identify risk factors that can be intervened to improve their patient's heart disease. So I think they do understand that just as they, they are to understand, um, screen out and identify lipid disorders, obesity, and high blood pressure in their patients, they also are, are committed to having the cardiologist to understand that sleep apnea is an established risk factor heart disease. So my understanding is really to increase um, that sensitivity and that understanding and potentially start to empower cardiologists to more effectively, uh, minimally refer patients for appropriate sleep studies, but potentially to do some screening in the cardiology setting 
itself. So it sounds like it would maybe be a, a collaborative effort then, you know, in terms of we have that education piece, as you've mentioned, to identify the risk factors. Um, how can we be better about collaborating with our cardiology colleagues? Yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it is a collaboration. And my understanding is that specialists outside of sleep realize, recognize that the management of sleep apnea takes a team and it's a specialty team. It's your respiratory therapist, it's your behavioral interventionist, as, as well as your sleep specialist. And cardiologists, as other specialists, recognize that takes an enormous amount of skill, coordination, and effort. And I don't believe that this is um, that level of management of of sleep apnea is something that the cardiology practices are likely to see. So again, where I see the collaboration is in cardiologists um, initiating more efficient and effective screening programs for sleep apnea and in patients who are most likely to be at risk and then benefit from intervention, and then working side by side with sleep centers to ensure that the appropriate series of home or full um, sleep studies or home-based sleep studies are done. And most importantly, that management is done appropriately um, with the appropriate um, uh, interventions and support for the, ensuring that those interventions are successful and patients benefit from them. So it sounds like sleep referral early. Uh, do you think we'll ever get to the point where it becomes algorithmic, where maybe they deploy the HSAT from their clinic in a patient with a high pretest probability, the interp is done by sleep, um, maybe the CPAP order is written by cardiology maybe or sleep, and then they follow up in sleep? I think that's a really interesting model, and it's... Um remains to be seen how those pieces fall together. In part, they may be dictated by third-party payers and other regulatory issues, um, which likely will, will change as the field demands it change and develops evidence that such changes will um, not impact care, but in fact, potentially improve both access and quality of care. Um, so I think those things would be evolving. I do think there is a real need to streamline the process and improve coordination. We know patients do poorly when there are too many handoffs and there are too many um, opportunities to fall through the cracks. Well, you're exactly right. You know, I think our, our current algorithm, um, it is time consuming and it is it is fragmented. And so how can we maybe tighten up some of those gaps, right? So it sounds like maybe this evolution <laughs> to maybe where we'll get to the point where it, you know, people are a little bit more comfortable um, talking about sleep within the confines of a, of a cardiology visit, right, before they hand off to sleep so that they understand the importance of following up with sleep. And that is not just another test. Exactly. I mean, I think one of the ways that a cardiologist could really also improve the potential outcomes of a sleep intervention in their patients is to communicate why they're asking about sleep, um, the potential impact of sleep apnea and sleep disorders on the heart and the potential benefit. Because 
Um, in fact, that cardiologist may be that patient's most trusted physician at that point in time. And in fact, will is committed to seeing that that patient's heart disease improves. So developing um, that, having that type of communication, that trust and that um, support to, to pursue a, a sleep diagnosis and then initiate that journey to get adequately treated with the support of um, that trusted uh, cardiologist, I believe could be really important. Well, and I love how, you know, it seems like a lot of your work is on the intersection of sleep disorders and other disease states. You know, we, we talk about this quite a bit on this need to break down information silos because sleep impacts every field. And so I really appreciate to me when I read, there's a ton of stuff on you, by the way, on Google. <laughs> but when I read about all of the things that you've done, um, you have really worked toward breaking down these information silos. So do you think people are receptive to learning about how sleep relates to their organ system? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the most gratifying things of actually living and breathing sleep over so many years is to see how excited um, multiple, multiple individuals across disciplines are about sleep. Uh, when I my, when my career started out, it, you really had to justify the importance of sleep. In fact, I remember very early on in my career, I was at a NIH meeting. It was actually in the division of lung disease, and I made a few comments to actually a group of pulmonologists of all people about sleep apnea. And some a very senior pulmonologist turned to me and said, "Is sleep apnea a real disease?" <gasps> And, no. um, and you just, and so you just think about, so this was again over 20 years ago, and you think what's happened in the last 20 years, where not only do we have to um, not um, justify that sleep apnea is a real disease and it has significant consequences and its treatment leads to benefit, but in fact, I see just the opposite where I see all sorts of specialists approach me regularly, gastroenterologists, oncologists, endocrinologists, who understand that um, the importance of sleep and, in fact, that sleep, um, poor sleep and sleep apnea are not infrequent problems amongst their patients, and they are looking for ways to improve their patient's quality of life. So I've really seen sleep be embraced by so many medical subspecialists. I also see sleep as really an area that a lot of social scientists um, are also super excited about getting involved with, because as you alluded to, it's um, sleep is um, so uh, pervasive, um, uh, you know, as um, a you know, as a, um, a, a phenomenon that we experience every day. And social scientists realize that um, sleep disturbances really aggregate um, with indicators of socioeconomic status, of, of, of community indicators of health. So in fact, there's also this great excitement by this other group of individuals. So we have excitement both in the medical area as well as in the social science area. And um, that frankly was not 
on the case 20 years ago. So I applaud the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I applaud uh, folks like you and, and all my colleagues in, in really um, getting the word out and, and helping patients feel better and, um, and also helping generate the evidence that I think has resulted in, I believe, a general community interest in sleep and an overall, you know, acceptance that sleep is that fourth pillar of health. You know, we diet, physical activity, stress, and sleep. And I do feel that we don't have to argue so much anymore. I think that's getting more and more accepted. I love that too. And hasn't it been great? I've seen that change since, you know, since fellowship. And my my favorite one is when the ophthalmologist refers a patient. We have one that lives in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and he, he refers his patients when they have floppy eyelid syndrome. And every single yeah. one has had sleep apnea. Everyone. It was just, it's yeah, amazing. No, I've heard those stories <laughs> Yeah, and we could go down the list of the different health conditions where there is a sleep connection and the excitement of of subspecialists, primary care docs, social scientists, et cetera, really um, beginning to accept that connection and look for these disorders and look for opportunities to make their patients better. We still have a long way to go, but it's clearly going in the right direction. So what do you think our biggest blind spot is? I mean, how can we do better as sleep clinicians? Yeah, I think there's still so many ways that we can do better. There, there's um, tremendous progress we've made. You know, we have many more tools out there. At one point, we, we wouldn't even uh, consider uh, uh, approaches like home sleep apnea tests, everything was fairly rigid and very protocolized because of early concerns of poor quality data and um, and not following appropriate protocols. I feel that we now understand that there is a growing role of technology um, and there's different types of technologies out there that may be better or less well suited uh, for making diagnoses. There are the complicated patients that may need more sophisticated approaches for for diagnosis and even treatment. There are the simpler patients who um, may be more readily um, diagnosed with, um, you know, you know, fairly simple measures. Potentially, even if, you know, I would love to see even finger pulse oximetry be used in individuals with, you know, a high pretest probability of sleep apnea. So I, I think we are moving into the use of technology. And I think that is good. There's obviously, um, you know, a lot of challenges for its appropriate use um, and, um, and systematic use. So one area, so I, I think we're getting over the blind spots um, of, of, technology and and understand we need to embrace a wider spectrum of technology that a lot of our traditional approaches for manually scoring and annotating at, um, actually may not provide the most reproducible or even the most predictive data. And of course, that opens up all the machine learning, artificial intelligence. And again, the Academy has been a leader in the last couple of years in, in trying to understand the role of that, that new technology. Where I actually feel we're doing less well is how we engage our patients in shared decision making. I think we're still pretty much in a mindset 
uh, specifically for sleep apnea, of offering CPAP, which we have the most experience and data on, as our first-line therapy, and then only going to um, additional interventions once CPAP fails. And I don't know if that's really what's best for our patients. We know from other diseases that patients have strong preferences in what types of therapies are most acceptable to them and their lifestyle. And the blind spot of the ear, I'd really love to see um, now that I think some of the technology issues are being addressed is really more sheer decision making mm-hmm. so that patients and physicians have discussions on really what um, you know how you know what their level of symptoms are, what are their expectations, what would be the burden of using a device first, you know, one type of device or another, um, or um, engaging in the surgical intervention or even engaging a long-term, you know, weight management program. So that's one area I still, you know, I see some emerging work, but I feel that we don't have as a field a complete mo- uh, mindset about de- integrating that sheer decision-making and getting the appropriate also reimbursement so you don't have to show, you know, you fail this before you go to that. Um, so that's that's an area. Um, I have a, you know a couple of other thoughts, but that's something I would love to see develop more. Well, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about how you're using data to inform your research and our understanding of sleep disorders. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Your membership in the AASM demonstrates your commitment to advancing sleep care and enhancing sleep health to improve lives. Stay connected to the thousands of colleagues that share your passion for healthy sleep. Renew your membership today at aasm.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Susan Redline about just a few of her contributions to the sleep field. So you were really kind of ahead of your time when you started collecting DNA as part of your research 30 years ago. How did you even think of this? Like, how did that even come about? Yeah, it's interesting looking in the retrospective scope, but I was I was very fortunate, you know, it, 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 I was very fortunate in working with a very strong respiratory epidemiology group. And one of the first projects that they assigned me to was to understand the genetics of asthma, oh. you know, I'm trained as a pulmonologist. So I had that, I had that um, uh, sort of background, and then I had the good fortune of working with Kingman Stroll shortly after he returned from Australia, and where he was introduced to CPAP, which back then was a brand new therapy, you know, that Colin Sullivan um, developed, and uh, Kingman came back all excited about <laughs> it, and, um, and then Kingman himself had actually described the very first family, um, this was as what he was in training, where there were multiple generations with sleep apnea. So I, I was very intrigued with this one family report. I was very intrigued with sleep apnea, but a lot of my research had been actually um, in the family aggregation of asthma. Um, it just happened to be one of the projects I was working on. And I basically started thinking about that one patient, that one family of Kingmans, and that there is li- there was likely a genetic basis that Kingman 
had um, stumbled upon and thought, shouldn't we study this more systematically to know the extent to which genetics does influence sleep apnea, and then potentially identifying what might be some molecular targets that we can um, intervene on to improve sleep apnea. And so I, I thought I'm a, I was trained in epidemiology as well. And I said, well, let's start by quantifying the family aggregation of sleep apnea. And I wrote a grant and rewrote the grant and we got funded. Uh, incidentally, I proposed to collect DNA and this was back in 1990. And the review group said, why in the world are you collecting DNA? And they recommended that it not be included in the funding of my oh, wow. study. But um, thankfully, I went ahead and um, found some resources and collected DNA anyway. It's almost absurd now. This is again, <laughs> you know, a, a you know, sort of a, a time, you know, a, a reflection of changes time. Who would ne- not collect DNA in a family study um, in this day yeah. and age? But that, you know, again, things have changed. So it really was an inspiration from Kingman Stroll and then, you know, connecting it with what I was learning elsewhere in the uh, sort of genetic studies of other pulmonary diseases. And they're still using that, right? With the Cleveland family study, they're still using that genetic data? Oh yeah, the the Cleveland family study was, um, you know, my my my, ba- my baby. Oh. And uh, for anyone who's listening, who's a new researcher, it, there it's a, such a special time in your career when you actually get an opportunity to develop your first study, or, or if you're interested in epidemiology, your first cohort. And that's what the Cleveland family study was. Um, in fact, when I started that study, I, I I did a lot of the home visits myself. I um, I really, up until recently, I was getting Christmas cards oh. from a lot of the wow. participants and their family members from that study. And it really um, was an, an extraordinary opportunity to um, collect data in a very interesting setting and, and get to know people and then also um, learn a lot about how you do genetic analyses. Um, using pedigree structures and then ultimately uh, genetics and molecular mechanisms. So um, we, we've you know, ultimately we enrolled more than two thousand individuals and we had DNA in about fifteen hundred wow. people. Um, and we uh, so we had it was a fairly big study for the time. These days, you know, people talk about hundreds of thousands of people, but they were carefully phenotyped and we followed people longitudinally. And then about six years ago, uh, NIH had an opportunity uh, where they um, made uh, resources available to do what's called whole genome sequencing uh, for samples that had been stored and, you know, were available and linked to good phenotypes. So we applied and we, you know, we got almost 1,500 samples uh, fully sequenced through this resource. Um, and that was then integrated into a large National Hot Lung Blood Institute um, data resource called TopMed, the, tra- um, the um, transomics in medicine initiative, which 
um, ultimately uh, sequenced more than 150,000 people. But um, up until just recently, the Cleveland Family Study was the only study specifically designed um, to look at sleep apnea. So we've been part of that initiative, and all those data are publicly available, and have um, you could you could get them through NHLBI's data repository, and have really gener- continued to generate a lot of um, interesting work um, about genetics and non-genetics. In, in fact, we. We hope to publish uh, shortly our newest uh, reanalysis of Cleveland Family using some of the sequence data that now we're combining with data from um, other many other cohorts oh, wow. of unrelated people. We can, um, and what we do is because the Cleveland Family is a pedigree-based study, um, and in these families there is the Greater, the likelihood of identifying our what we call rare genetic variants that segregate, and we use that information to um, sort of focus in on areas of the genome where there may be a um, overrepresentation of disease alleles, um, and then test those areas in much larger samples. So it's a way of improving the efficiency of the study. And we just did this with um, using some of that top mid data. And we're, we're very excited. We, we, we are hoping that um, what reviewers will agree. And we, uh, we think we have some new insights into a, a novel genetic mechanism for sleep oh, wow. apnea. So you're obviously very well known for your use of big data. And I'm, I'm going to ask you a loaded question. Should we be mining our EMRs for sleep disorders? Yeah, um, I don't think it's a loaded question, but I, I actually think there's a question that may need to be asked before <laughs> that question. And that is, um, you know, the, the real power, of I, I think, is not necessarily in having ICD based codes for sleep apnea, insomnia, or obesity, or even what's called V codes, which are a little more sophisticated groupings of data from the EMR. But it's really getting the, the physiologic signal data in a format that we could begin to tease apart the heterogeneity in sleep apnea that I believe exists and that we often, I think, skim over. So I think the real opportunity is for all the clinicals, you know, every clinical sleep lab to actually follow some standardized best practices in how they collect Mm. sleep study data, both in the home and in the laboratory, and get those into the EMR in a format that can be mined. Um, And this sounds simple, but what is really... um, very apparent when you look across laboratories and you try to harmonize data from different sleep devices, you realize the uh, tremendous variation in how uh, filters are used, how sampling rates are used, the variation in sensors, the variation in how we even label channels. And in order to really make data, pool data, in a way that we could really use it as a field, I think we need to commit to collecting somewhat more standardized and 
pure signals, and then make them what we call findable mm. in the EMR so that they actually can be linked to then other data, you know, demographic data, health data, and so forth. So, you know, switching a little bit, I, I really appreciated your work on underserved communities and, and about how environmental factors are out there and that we need to consider them. And so I really liked that study from USC that showed that when you have homeless adults and you move them into housing, that their insomnia goes away and kind of stays away for a year. So can you tell me about the study? I, I understand you've got a personal connection there. I'm so tickled to death that you found that study. Um, you tweeted so that it. that is not my study. That's <laughs> You tweeted well, it, and I was just intrigued by it. I tweeted it. My son was the uh, person <laughs> behind it, Brian Redline. So, um, it, so it, it is one of the, you know, there are many joys we have in life. I talked a little bit about, you know, how the Cleveland family was my really, in some sense, my baby, but in fact, Brian is my real baby. And, um, he is, um, you know, after many years of potentially being bored by me talking about sleep, something must have stuck because, uh, he uh, went out to California and got a job with a fantastic group at UCI, um, I mean, um, um, USC, uh, headed by uh, a sociology sociologist by the name of Ben Henwood, who was very interested in the problems of homeless youth in Los Angeles. And Dr. Henwood's interest was uh, in, in fact, the impact of what they call structured housing first that you really can't make an impact in a um, an individual's life unless you get a roof over their head. And uh, the group that my son joined was predominantly interested in issues about mental health and addiction. Mm. And as he started working with this group, I think one of those dinnertime conversations probably came to the surface and he realized the opportunity for the group he was working with to study sleep. And so we had some conversations about how you would do that. And it was my son that took it into this cohort and I think um, got his boss oh, and wow. his team excited and they, they did that study. But I, I, I didn't do it. I just was some inspiration. <laughs> well, but you see how far your, your reach, you know, you can stretch. Um, I'm actually really excited that you're going to be the keynote speaker at the Sleep Conference in 2022. You know, congratulations. Can you give us a sneak? Oh, thank you. I was totally Aww. so honored by it. it was, Can you give us yeah. a sneak peek? What are you going to talk about? <laughs> well, I've been asked to talk about a cardiovascular disease and, and sleep apnea, and I'm and it's a challenging area. Uh, it's an area because we have a lot of fantastic studies showing the links between sleep apnea and cardiovascular disease, but we have much less data showing the impact of treatment on attenuating those cardiovascular disease risks. So I'm going to try to take um, be you know take a hot both a, a high and a, a deep view of why there may be some discrepancies between our um, observational data and our intervention data and review um, in particular I, some of the newer ways 
to characterize sleep apnea that may be better at identifying people with sleep apnea who may most benefit Mm. um, in terms of their cardiovascular outcomes from intervention. And then a special interest of mine is gender and sex differences in sleep apnea and really take a dive into how sleep apnea, how the pathophysiology of sleep apnea differs in men and women and how some of those mechanisms um, may be relevant for risk of cardiovascular disease. Oh, wow. Disease. I bet that'll be amazing. I'm not sure about <laughs> that, but I think it'll be a, cha- it'll be a challenge. <laughs> and I, I hope I could, um, hope I don't uh, bore anybody and um, don't overstate anything either. No, well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. You know, you've had this incredible career. And, and I'm not sure you realize how many people you've impacted, you know, not necessarily directly, right, but indirectly through a lot of your work. So I really appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you very much for your time and the excellent and provocative questions. It was really a lot of fun talking to you. So you, you stay healthy and um, hope to see you in person at the sleep meeting. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.